Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. We shall begin here. We got a lot of territory to cover, and uh, quite literally, again, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep teaching Acts through December 22nd. December 29th. We'll not have an Acts class, but I'll probably still do something since I'll be here. Um, I realize, especially with all of the preparations for Christmas, that there's a lot going on during these times, and so it's harder to attend. Again, I, I direct you to the website, to the podcast. It's a great way to be able to keep up and follow along, even if you're not able to make it every single class period. Try to inco- accommodate you that way. So today we're covering, as I said, a lot of territory, and I did mean that quite literally. Uh, as we begin chapter 11, remember I kind of stopped midway through 11 because we finished the first uh, section of chapter 11, which was really going back to what happened before, namely that uh, Peter had this encounter with Cornelius, that God showed Peter. Uh, well, first God called Cornelius to bring Peter to his house, but God showed Peter to not think that what God has called clean is is not clean. And Peter realized that this wasn't just about food, but it had to do with welcoming three guests, three Gentile guests from the house of Cornelius and following them back to Cornelius' home, staying with Cornelius, and then proclaiming the gospel to Cornelius. And this was a huge leap, a huge transformation where the, the, the church realized that in order to to be a believer, to, to follow Jesus, you didn't first had to convert to Judaism with all that that entailed, uh, including circumcision, and then you could become a follower of Jesus. But even if you were a Gentile, hearing that message, repenting, believing, and you could be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit, that this was a huge deal. So uh, from chapter 10, that spilled over into chapter 11 up until verse, what, 18. And then verse 19 of 11 is a complete change of scenery, and we're going to be talking about Antioch. Um, because a lot of this is foreign to us, um, I know this isn't the greatest map that I'm projecting here because it's everything is small, but I just want you to get kind of the general picture of where things are. If you have a good Bible, it should have a much nicer picture for you to be able to find all of this stuff in. So last time I showed a picture too that talked about um, the encounters that Peter had with some of the early Christians outside of Jerusalem. And we remember that he went to Lydda and to Joppa, and then he ends up in Caesarea. The Dead Sea, sorry, the Dead Sea is down here. The Sea of Galilee is up here. The Jordan River uh, connects them. And so if you kind of just remember the basic events of Jesus's life, Jesus is born in Nazareth, and most of his ministry is up around the Sea of Galilee in that area. Uh, He does travel and walk around to, to different places, but that's kind of the, the home territory. And then he ends in Jerusalem. And we know in Acts, the story goes out from Jerusalem. And we, for the most part, have heard a lot of Jerusalem stuff. We heard about how Philip went down to Gaza and then went back up to Caesarea, but then we went back to Jerusalem to find out what's going on there and hear about Stephen and all of those things. Um, uh, what happened afterwards. We heard about Samaria a little bit, but we're, we're all in Judea. This is all, you know, the territory that, that was King David's old kingdom. It, it's not anymore. Now it's all part of the Roman Empire, but that's what we were looking at. When we get into this next section, you'll see here 
This is the Dead Sea area from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. That's this small area down here. We're going to be going far beyond the boundaries of Judea. We're going to hear in our readings, here's Caesarea again. This is where uh, Phil, uh, Philip left after his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, and this is where... Peter goes to Cornelius's residence. Uh, Caesarea is kind of a Roman city, a capital of the of the province here, and so it would have a Roman garrison. Uh, Pontius Pilate's palace, you know, that he lived in during his time, would have been there. He obviously traveled around in in the area, and he did spend time in Jerusalem for the festival. But Caesarea is kind of his home territory. We're going to hear about places like Phoenicia. Tyre and Sidon. Um, and then the city of Antioch is way up here. This is modern day Syria. So this is much farther north. We're going to hear about Cyprus, which is an island that is uh, off the coast here of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, distance wise, this is 75 miles. So if you, you know, do the math, Antioch is a considerable distance away from Jerusalem. This is the gospel going to the entire world. This is not just in our home territory. They're far beyond those reaches. We know that Antioch has already kind of been in play because after we heard about Saul, uh, we heard about how Saul was in, in Antioch and he goes to his home city after that to Tarsus. Um, Cyprus has come up once before when we heard about Barnabas, who was one of those who brought his offerings to, to the feet of the disciples, the apostles, and it said that, that Barnabas was from Cyprus. We'll hear more about it, but so that island that's kind of out there um, has, has come into play. So the expanding territory that we're covering, this is a sign of the word of the Lord growing and expanding and getting out to more and more people. All right, I'm going to turn this off for now, but that gives you an idea of what we're talking about. Jerusalem is still going to be in the story a little bit, but really Luke's focus is moving far beyond Jerusalem, that there is a world out there that needs to hear the gospel, and this is how it happens. So, in 11, we pick up at verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, we talked about that up the coast, and Cyprus, and to Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now all three of those areas are not necessarily uh like I said, Jewish territory. There would have been Jews there. They would have had their own synagogues. They probably have their own areas of town because as we've learned, the Jews don't like to associate with the Gentiles. But these are predominantly not Jewish territories. These are places of the Gentiles. And so when Luke first explains that they were traveling to those regions, it's interesting that he notes, but at first, who are they speaking to? Just to their own. They're, they're just going to the Jews. So Luke is telling us that that leap that happened with the apostle Peter, where he realizes that the gospel is for all people, even the Gentiles, others are still not there yet. And so at first, after the martyrdom of Stephen, it's just going to the Jews. But this is the interesting thing. Verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene was not on that map. Cyrene is a city in uh, modern day Libya, North Africa. Cyrene kind of becomes famous because of the story of Jesus's crucifixion. Do you remember Cyrene, how Cyrene popped up there? Yeah, there was a man named Simon of Cyrene who he was forced to carry the cross as Jesus was uh, taken to Golgotha. So uh, you, you can kind of put two and two together here, but 
Simon of Cyrene at that time was probably just a Jew who traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, one of those great feasts that Jews are supposed to come to Jerusalem, and he just happened to be there, depending on your perspective, the the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time. And the fact that Luke names him probably indicates that this changed this Simon of Cyrene. Whatever he went to Jerusalem for, he most likely leaves a Christian. I think later we hear about Alexander and Rufus, his children, and so it seems that Simon is a believer. So when we hear about people from Cyrene, we're several years into the story. In all likelihood, Simon has returned home at some point in time and brought that message with him. So the message is now reverberating, echoing out, and more people's lives have been touched because Cyprus and Cyrene are not really two places that are next to one another on the map. Cyprus is this island off the coast, and then Cyrene is further down in Africa, uh, in northern Africa. So that's there. But these men, they came to Antioch. Antioch is a very cosmopolitan city. Uh, Antioch, based on historical sources, was probably the third biggest city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, Antioch, again, it's hard to get these figures exact because they didn't quite measure them uh, accurately and those those figures aren't accessible, but estimates are about 500,000 people maybe in the city of Antioch. So this is, this is a big cosmopolitan city. It's kind of the equivalent to, uh, if it were America, going to New York City or Chicago or Los Angeles. Um, people didn't go to the small town. They were going to this cosmopolitan city. We don't know exactly why. Did they go there specifically for the purpose of evangelism? Or is it just because this is a big city? A lot of people have commercial interactions, business dealings, and you're going to deal with big cities when you're a businessman. And so they were already there. But while they were there, what else are they going to do? Well, they're going to do the same thing that they've been doing everywhere else, that is, spread the word of God. So they're there in Antioch, and they spoke to the Hellenists. There's a lot of disagreement on what this means. Hellenists, very literally, it refers to Greek. Uh, the, the people in Greece today, they, their country, is, they don't call their country Greece. That's what we call their country. They call it Hellas, H-E-L-L-A-S. If you ever did history and learned about the Hellenistic Empire, that's the empire of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great brought the Greek culture to all of these different places, and that's what connected them. So Hellenists, I, I gather from the, the talking around, does anybody have a different word for Hellenists at that spot? Greeks, Greeks okay. So Hellenists and Greeks, it's, it's making that connection for you. Greeks is a bit more specific. So if you say that somebody is Greek, what does that, what does that indicate to you? From They're from Greece. That's, that's their bloodline, right? That's their family. That's their heritage. So that's very specific. If you say that somebody is a Hellenist, it does not necessarily mean that they're of a Greek bloodline, but it means that culturally they're following the ways of the Greeks. Again, Alexander the Great sort of made this uh, a thing because you could be living in India, but you could be a part of the Greek culture. You could learn their language. You could participate in the, the gymnasium and the baths and the things that, that Greeks really thought of as, as being Greek. And so this is, this is always a thing, that you could be Greek, but you could be Hellenist. And the reason why there are different translations out there that go either way is because people are not sure 
which way this is going. Is it that they were speaking to people who were culturally Greek? Because being from Cyprus and Cyrene, um, you know, they, it's possible that they had Greek blood flowing through them. But it's also just as likely that they were not Greek, but they knew the Greek language and culture because that's what was all around them. And that's what you needed in order to survive in the world and get ahead. The reason why this becomes important is because what is it saying here in this verse? Is it saying that these people from Cyrene and Cyprus proclaimed the gospel to people who spoke Greek? We assume that this is referring to Jews because they were only speaking to Jews. Or is this saying they brought the gospel basically to Gentiles? Um, to Gentiles, to people that were not like them, that did not have the same culture, the same background. And commentators can spend lots of pages arguing one way or the other. The crux of it kind of boils down to this. If what they're saying is that here in Antioch, the message was going out to Gentiles, Luke kind of says it matter-of-factly. In, in fact, he doesn't even indicate who are these people from Cyprus and Cyrene that have this great idea that we know is correct because of the Cornelius Peter episode, that the gospel isn't just for the Jews, what we read in verse 19, but is actually for everybody, for the Greeks too. If that's what Luke is saying, it's amazing how matter-of-factly he says it because we just learned that that was a huge thing. It took Peter, you know, that vision from God to see the light. And we're going to get to Acts 15 in a little bit and realize that the people in Jerusalem are still kind of struggling with what do you do with Gentiles? And so is Luke saying Gentile mission had already begun in Antioch, kind of just on its own, as these people realized, hey, why not? Why not share the gospel with them as well? On the other hand, those, those scholars that say no, they basically take everything that I just say and say that's why it means they were just speaking to Greek-speaking Jews. Because this was a really big deal. Why wouldn't Luke tell us more about this Gentile missionary project that began in Antioch? How is it that they reached this conclusion? Was it, did they hear about Peter? Did they do this before that? At, like the chronology is, is not exactly clear what's going on. So your translations, ver Hellenists versus Greeks, they're kind of wrestling with that, I think. Um, from the language itself, there's not a strong indication. Um, you can be a Hellenist and be a Greek. You can also be a Hellenist and be a Jew. Um, you're not a very good Jew, according to Jews, if you're like adopting some of the cultural ways of, of the, uh, the people around you. But, but we hear about it. It happens. Usually those people are called God-fearing Jews. Um, again, Luke doesn't mention that here, but that's, that's really what's going on. So Antioch possibly could be one of the places where Gentile missions began. If so, there's very little fanfare. No, no individuals are named, unlike Peter's great revelation from God. So that's there. Regardless of how you solve that little interpretation issue, the point is the gospel. It's being proclaimed. It's getting out to more in a cosmopolitan city where you're interacting with more people beyond just yourself, your own culture, your own people, and that's going to lead to some interesting things. The hand of the Lord was with them. So as they're proclaiming this, oh, here was the other thing. So what was it that they were preaching in verse 20? They were preaching the Lord Jesus. If I had to put my money down on what I think is going on in that verse, I think that the gospel is being proclaimed to Gentiles. That's, that's sort of where I think it's going. Um, again, there's arguments on both sides, but 
this proclamation proclaiming the Lord Jesus. This is a little bit different than the gospel message that has been preached before, where it was strongly emphasized, what? That Jesus is the Christ. The Jews are waiting for the Messiah to come. The great insight that the Christians have, Jesus is that Christ. All of those messianic hopes that you have, they are fulfilled in Jesus. So look to him. But here the message isn't Jesus is the Christ. It's Jesus is the Lord. And that message to me is a message that would make more sense to a Gentile audience. Again, it's still going to be ultimately the same message pointing to the same truth, but the idea of the Lord. This is um, kind of language that they have. If you're in a, a mixed religious area, that they would call their own gods Lord. They would, the word Messiah or Christ would mean nothing to them. That's, that has a Jewish baggage. They're not talking about Messiahs or Christ if you are practicing a pagan religion, but you do recognize the language of Lord. Uh, in Latin, the Dominus, that this is part of what they know. And so if that proclamation is that Jesus is the Lord, my thought is that's a message that's true, but it's different than Jesus is the Christ and it's a message that speaks more to a Gentile audience. Again, you use what they know to bring them to Christ, to point those things that they think are true about their own faith and their own religion and show how Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment and the greater promise. So ultimately, that's, that's what I think is going on, but uh, this isn't a thus saith the Lord. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church at Jerusalem. Again, remember how far away we are? So they hear some stuff going on. They're like, okay, what's, what's going on here? And so they send Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas is kind of a, a good candidate. He's done a great job. Um, he's not listed as, you know, one of those first apostles, uh, but He's a disciple of Jesus who, when Saul came to Jerusalem, Barnabas was kind of the mediator between Saul and the apostles to help them recognize that Saul wasn't uh, the enemy anymore, but he was one of them. We also, again, said that Barnabas was from Cyprus. So maybe they've heard that some people from Cyprus are involved. Barnabas is, you know, one of them. So maybe he's a good candidate. They don't send one of the apostles. Peter doesn't go off to uh, Antioch. A again, it's not necessarily the case that when they hear about the gospel, like they need to have the apostles to lay hands on everybody. And it's only when that happens that the Holy Spirit is really, you know, working. The, the Holy Spirit is working through the word. Whoever it is that is proclaiming it, it doesn't matter. It's just in Jerusalem, they're like, whoa, Antioch. A Antioch is is this cosmopolitan city, it's far away. And there are, there's Christians there now too? Who's doing this? What's going on? They're just, they're just trying to get heads and tails of this. They don't have you know, their daily news or the internet or email, so they have to send somebody. Barnabas goes there. When he comes to Antioch, he saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord and with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And then Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. We'll pause there for a second. So Barnabas sees what's happening in Antioch, and he's got no problem with anything. So again, what was happening? Was the gospel being shared with Gentiles? Was it being shared with Jews? Whatever is happening, he sees that it's the word of God. It's being believed and he rejoices. He's glad and there's really nothing for him to do. You know, he didn't, he didn't have to change anything. It's just like, keep it up, guys. Barnabas is known, uh, we, we heard this when we first um, encountered him, the son of encouragement. Here he's doing exactly what his name says. He is just encouraging them. 
keep it up, guys. But he does see, as the Lord is adding to their number, Antioch is this huge city. If, if he is going to hang out here and, and help them, encourage them, he's not going to be able to do this alone. And so rather than going back down to Jerusalem and, and taking somebody from that context, he goes to Tarsus. And again, if you can remember that map, Tarsus was not that far from Antioch compared to going all the way down to Jerusalem again. He already had a previous relationship with Saul. He knew that he was, you know, a brother in Christ. He knew that he was well uh, gifted um, based on what he heard about from Saul preaching in the synagogues and everything like that. So Barnabas realizes that he's not going to be able to do what needs to be done on his own. So he just checks in with them. Everything is good. But he's like, you know, kind of he sees that the mission field is so big, so huge, and he's going to need some help. So all this time, Saul has been in Tarsus. Luke tells us nothing about what's going on. We don't know how long this is between when Saul went to Tarsus. Um, based on the epistles of Paul, I, I think most biographers guess that he spent about seven or eight years in Tarsus before Barnabas comes and get him, get, gets him. So again, time is passing here. Um, this didn't just happen overnight. One of the things that's really exciting about the book of Acts is we see how the church grows and grows and grows, and it doesn't just happen overnight. It happened through a lot of work, a lot of people going out and proclaiming that message multiple times at some of these same places, but the Holy Spirit did ultimately bless that work. So when Saul's picked up here, some time has passed since his previous stay um, and, and encounters uh, with people from this area. Uh, when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So far, we've heard a lot of different ways of referring to these earlier believers. Disciples, saints, brothers, uh, the church, but it's not until here in Antioch that that name Christian was applied. And it seems, uh, by the language, they were first called Christians. It didn't say that they call themselves Christians or they decide on that name. It seems like this is what outsiders called them. So outsiders recognize some things about them. They, they recognized that this was a large, cohesive group, um, that they were different from the Jews, because Jews are already out there. They, they know and can identify them, and they're distinguished by being called Christian and Christ, Christ. That's the, the key part. They realized that this Christ, they're talking a lot about Christ, and, and they're followers of Christ. It's kind of interesting that they didn't call them Jesusians or, you know, whatever, like, but the same idea. Um, Jesus is just a, a name, right? Jesus was a very common name among Jews, Yeshua, Joshua in the Old Testament. But the key thing is that they're talking about Christ. So that's what they, they get called. And we don't need to think that this was a complimentary term. It probably was meant to mock them. Um, you know, you follow that that Christ, that that one who is who is crucified and mocked. The, the Jews, his own people, don't even recognize him as the Christ. And yet, you 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 people, you Christians, you you follow him. So here's where the name Christian picks up, and this isn't really that strange or foreign in the history of of church groups. You think of um, Lutherans, for instance, uh, when Martin Luther is doing all of his things during the Reformation, at no time ever did he say, come on, my people, my fellow Lutherans. It was the, the papacy and the enemies of Luther that called the people of the Reformation that believed in the things that, uh, that Martin Luther was teaching, that the Roman Catholic Church had aired. 
they're the ones that are being called Lutherans by the opposition. And again, that wasn't meant as a compliment. It was to signify you're not a part of the one true church. The one true church is under and follows the Pope, but you reject him. You, this, this drunken monk, this German guy, Luther, that's who you're following. We'll follow him all you want. It was meant as mockery. But as often also happens, the people take those names of, of mockery and they just, all right, you, you want to call us that? Then, then fine. We follow Luther as Luther follows the word of God. And this early group here, you want to call us Christians? Well, that's really not a, a bad way to think of us. Um, the way, that was the other term we heard, that they were followers of the way. And they referred to themselves as that. Here, they're called Christians, and it is re that word is used a couple of times in the New Testament, but by and large, this isn't what Christians were calling themselves, um, which is a little bit, you can see how things have changed. We today, I think first and foremost, who am I? I'm a Christian. You know, that's a way that we self-identify and uh, there's very little, when we use it, there's very little indication of any mockery or derision. Yes, people might make fun of Christians, but for us it's, it's a perfectly neutral and maybe even a positive word. But again, it's that fact that they're in a big cosmopolitan city and they're recognized as something distinct. That tells you what a force, how they have grown into this, in this big city that they're recognized. People know who they are and they're talking about them. Um, yeah, sometimes you think bad press is, is bad. You don't want it. But the fact that they're known means that they were active and out and doing things. And, you know, if, if that's what it means to be a Christian, that the world sees us doing stuff, I wouldn't mind being called a Christian either. If that's a term of mockery, I would rather have that than that people would say, oh, you're, you're just a person like I am. You know, we all believe the same things. We all do the same things. Um, you know, we were, what are we? We're Americans, you know, and, and that's our common identity. Well, the, the Bible teaches that there's a more core and deep down connection that we all have that goes past any kind of national distinctions. And they're figuring that out here at Antioch. People from Cyprus, Cyrene, Antioch, a cosmopolitan city, they're all being brought together and they have one thing in common. It's not that they speak Greek, it's that they're Christians, that they follow Christ. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Whenever you hear the word Jerusalem, if you're going to Jerusalem, you go up to Jerusalem. Whenever you leave Jerusalem, you go down from Jerusalem. It does not indicate direction north, south, east, west. Here, Antioch, we, we think, why aren't they going up to Antioch? It's north. It's up there. It always refers to the fact that Jerusalem is Mount Zion. It's the city on a hill. And whenever you go up to Jerusalem, you are literally ascending to go up to the city. Whenever you leave, you are going down. Um, and so that's, that's the language there. I think we confuse it because for us, usually up is north and down is south. That's not at all what they're thinking. Um, one of these prophets, one of them named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius the emperor. Uh, the emperor of Rome. So we're also now a few emperors past the time of Jesus, another indication that time has passed. Um, I think on my notes, what do I have? Claudius, he reigned from 41 to 54. Uh, the exact year of this famine, we don't know, but if it's during the reign of Claudius, it's, it's going to be somewhere in that time range. Um, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Um, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Two things, one at the beginning and one at the end of this reading. First, it talks about now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem. And then at the end, it talks about elders 
in Jerusalem. There's not a lot in the New Testament and Acts and so forth identifying specific like prophets. Um, who are these people? They're distinguished from the apostles, but you know, what? We don't have prophets today in our church, do we? You know, who, what's going on here? Luke just kind of throws it into the narrative. So there's a lot of questions that we want to know. But ultimately, what is a prophet? A prophet is somebody who brings the word of God that can be just words of law and gospel to the people right here, right now. As we studied the Old Testament and the prophets, we saw that they did a lot of that. The prophets can also, by God's uh, revelation, talk about things that are to come. And apparently, that's what this guy Agabus did. And was he a true prophet or a false prophet? Very clearly a true prophet because these famines that he talked about actually happened. Um, we might want to know more about these prophets and, you know, how many of them, where did, where did they come from? But Luke doesn't really give us much here to go on, but just to know prophets are out there as well. Not just evangelists and apostles, but, but the prophets. At the end of the reading, they're sending this relief to Jerusalem to the elders. Um, in Greek, the word for elder is presbyteros. Uh, the church denomination, Presbyterian, that that name is, is the Greek word here. Um, and they're called Presbyterian because it refers to their hierarchy, how they govern themselves are by elders in their congregation, which are slightly different than the elders, the lay ministers that we have in our own congregation. In the New Testament, that word presbyteros can be a lot of different things. And so it kind of indicates to us church hierarchy and structure. The first thing that the disciples, the apostles were thinking was not, okay, guys, we're starting a new organization. We're going to need some bylaws here. We're going to need a good lawyer to tell us what we can and can't do. We're going to need somebody with vision. We're going to need somebody that brings organization. We have to get this all figured out in order. How's this organization going to run? They were not doing that. But as we've seen, they were just getting the word out. They were just living their lives. And as problems developed, they're like, oh, we got to do something about this. So we had the problem with table service and the widows. We got we to do something. We got to come up with something to, to solve this. And it seems like church hierarchy is kind of an afterthought and just kind of develops naturally um, because this, the elders... Is it the apostles that he's talking about? Well, then why wouldn't he call them apostles? Because that's what they've been referred to as well. Are the elders different than apostles? Are they like pastors? Um, again, in Luke's day, I'm sure people knew exactly what they were talking about. But over the years, the names and the positions and the titles have have changed and drifted and added to and subtract from. So it's hard to know what these people were. We'll hear about elders in other places. And in other places, it sounds like they're pastors, um, that like they're in charge of a specific group of people. But here, I, I don't know. And then how, how did they get them? You know, what, what was the process? Luke, He's, he's not interested in telling us about church structure and organization. He's just, this is how the word got out. And along the way, some of these people, we just happened to, to come upon them. And here's one place that we happened to come upon them. We know that these famines were quite prevalent um, in the ancient world. And there seemed to be uh, quite a few of them. So here uh, in Antioch, again, they're far they're away from Jerusalem. They're in areas that have more access to agricultural abundance and supply. Down in Jerusalem, if you have a bad season, uh, what are you going to do? Uh, it's, it's not the cosmopolitan area. Trade is not coming into Jerusalem as readily as it is to Antioch, which is near the coast. So how do you feed people when there is a famine? You have to somehow get them food. Well, usually that doesn't come as a gift. It can, but usually it comes when you purchase it. Well, you can only do that for so long, right? You can buy food today, tomorrow, the next day. 
I'm starting to run out of money. What am I going to do? I, I can't keep buying food like this. So this relief effort is a way as a gift to, to bring them food, to bring them supplies so that they're able to live. And with everything that we have going on, it's a great way to show that unity and fellowship that we saw all the way back in Acts 2 that the church had everything in common, and as somebody had need, they gave to those people in need from others who had more than enough. Well, here in Antioch, they're recognizing that they have more than enough. The people in Jerusalem, they're Christians too. They're part of us. We are the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. They're in need. We want to help them. This is not going to be the last time that Saul shows his care and support for the Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, Throughout his letters, you'll hear him talk about taking a collection, and he does that from all of these Gentile uh, cities. Again, it is proof of their connection with one another. All right, so this is what happened. They gather these supplies, they bring it uh, to the elders there in Jerusalem by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So these guys know those people, they know the way, they've been there, send them back down. All right, now we get into the uh, messy stuff. Chapter 12 is the martyrdom of James. Before we get there. Yep, yep, same one. Uh, well, he's going to be a, a lot more in Acts. He's going to continue the journey. But yeah, other than that, he, another one of those, he, he just pops into the story and then he becomes a part of the story. And then, yeah, he didn't, to our knowledge, he didn't write any epistles or anything like that. So he, there's, there's not a lot to go on. Okay. Yeah. And now Paul was still in prison during this time. Nope. Nope. He's, he's. Uh, the, the, the imprisonments, that's all in the future. This, this is like, you're talking about the imprisonments that we hear about from his letters. Yeah, that's all in the future. He has not done any of the missionary journeys as of yet. It's only, yeah, no. Yeah, he, he is, Some of them, yeah, yeah. This is this is Acts. He is not writing this, and this is all. This precedes all of that. Yeah, we'll we'll talk more about the prison. We'll talk more about the epistles and how they fit in when we get to the missionary journeys. All of that happens then. This this is before that. Yeah, I I understand. It's very. It, Luke doesn't help us a lot because we would like. Okay, this is this date and this event. He doesn't do that. Occasionally, he throws us a bone, but um, that's not. He's not trying to do what we want him to do in that respect. Okay. So after Paul's conversion, mm-hmm. and then he kind of went off the grid, mm-hmm. and Peter picks up. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. So um, uh, it's back in 9, nine twenty six. Saul goes to Jerusalem. This is after his conversion, after Damascus. And, uh, and then verse 30. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. We don't hear about him again until now when Barnabas picks him up. Um, and then they spend a year in Antioch and then go to Jerusalem. Okay. And now, as if to complicate things further, this next event is not necessarily event that follows what we just heard. In fact, it most likely preceded it, but we're not sure. But the point is, he's now turning his attention back to Jerusalem, and it's like, oh, uh, on Jerusalem, we, we got to cover something really important. What's been happening in Jerusalem? Well, there's this guy named Herod. And I have a handout for you because when it comes to Herod uh, in the Bible, it's really confusing. And in fact, this won't help you very much because I'm going to show you how it's even worse than you think. So Herod the Great is, is the king of the Jews. He is appointed by the Roman Empire to govern the territory of Judea. 
Okay, he he is chosen by the the emperor and confirmed by the Roman Senate. The Jews in Judea really have no say about this. This is not somebody that they have necessarily chosen. This is all through the Roman Empire, and Herod the Great is made king of the Jews. He is not a Jew um, by birth. He's an Edomite. If you can remember back to when we went through the prophets, the book of Obadiah, we talked about this, that he is from the land of, of Edom, which in that day was called Idumea. And so he, he went and he wasn't really a by the book Jew. He, he was not a conservative Orthodox Jew, but he was governing his people and he claimed allegiance with them. And he did some good things for them, like rebuilding the temple and adding a lot of money to it. He also taxed them heavily in order to do this. And there's a lot of other stories about his ruthlessness. Um, the famous saying of um, Caesar Augustus that it was better to be a swine of Herod than a son because he was always jealous of his sons that they were trying to usurp his power and his wealth. And so he had some of his children killed. Um, he's not a, a good benevolent dad. Anyways, he dies uh, early in the story. Remember, Jesus and his family are in Egypt. And the, the angel tells uh, Joseph, it's safe to come back now. Herod, he, he's gone. He's out of the picture. Depending on which... Um, uh, astron astro astronomical event you go by. He dies either 4 BC or 1 BC. I think most people lend are, are pushed towards the idea that he died in 4 BC, but it's, again, there's not a thus saith the Lord on that. So before he dies, he persecuted Bethlehem, trying to kill all of the children there because he heard about this. Herod dies, his empire is kind of divided up. Herod passed the torch to his family in his will, but it wasn't really his to pass down. Like he could pass down his money, but the power and authority to rule, that would still have to go through the Roman Senate. They would determine this. And what they did was they broke up the area into four pieces. So the land that Herod governed would not be governed by one person, but it would be governed by multiple of them. Um, I have that listed below. So the, of the next generation, Archelaus was the ethnarch of Judea, Samaria, and Idumea. This is about half the territory. This is the largest largest portion of his father's rule. He ruled from 4 BC to AD 6. He was banished to Gaul and his land then became the Roman province of Judea. Um, it's always dangerous to be a ruler because back in Rome, tensions were always high. There were always conspiracies. Nobody trusted anybody. And so if you showed really strong allegiance to one guy and that person's no longer in power, they're going after all of his allies too. And you who expressed great allegiance to him could be a suspicious fellow and you would not stay in power for very long. So there's a lot of change here. So he was one of the rulers. Philip, the Tetrarch, uh, he is the Tetrarch. Tetrarch, Tetra means four, Arc means ruler. So ruler, one of the four rulers of two areas called Iteria and Trachonitis. This is northeast of the Sea of Galilee. He ruled from 4 BC to 34 AD. He was childless. His land was given over to a Syrian legate who is another Roman official and later to Agrippa I. And then there's Herod Antipas. Um, this is the one that is the person in charge of the trial of Jesus, this Herod, not any of the others. So Herod the Great, Bethlehem, Herod Antipas is the one who's in charge of that trial of Jesus and ultimately um, uh, sentenced Jesus to death. He was a tetrarch of Galilee and Perea from 4 BC to AD 39, and then he was exiled to Spain by Caligula. Again, he got on the wrong side of the emperors. The one that we're just hearing about now is the next one, Herod Agrippa I. And he was given piece by piece all of his grandfather's territory. 
So it didn't all happen at once. But as you can see, some of these guys, they lost favor. Their land was taken away. Well, Philip, uh, or sorry, Herod Agrippa was gradually given more and more of that territory until he was given basically as much land as his grandfather um, had. And this Herod Agrippa did not have a good relationship with the church, which is no surprise because none of the other ones have either. But here... This is the Herod that sentences James to death, and he is about to do the same to Peter. Um, the reason why this is all the more complicated is on the backside. I'm not going to go over the backside, but it tries to explain a little bit more some of these relationships. And what you find out is that some of these people were married to their siblings. So how do you draw that in a family tree when you're from the same family, but you're also married to one another? Sometimes they're married to like uncles, which again, how do you draw that? So um, it gets really confusing. There's one person, Philip, which we're not sure if there are two Philips that were children of Herod, um, because if there's only one, we hear about this person Herodias, who's married to Philip, but we also hear about a daughter of Herodias, who's also married to Philip. And you're like, did the guy marry his um, a mother and the daughter too? And the mother was uh, a niece? Like, it's possible. With, I mean, anything is possible. They had no scruples. And when you think about their environment, they, they always lived in suspicion. They trusted no one except family, I guess. And so if that's the only person you can trust, um, yeah, go, go ahead. But that's not really unusual in other cultures. There are stories in other cultures of among royalty, siblings, cousins, uh, whatnot being married. So it's not unusual. To us it is, and it makes it really hard to figure out a family tree. But those are the Herodians. So this Herod, not the same Herod that sentenced Jesus to death, not obviously the one uh, that killed all the babies in Bethlehem, but part of the same family. All right. That's where I'm going to have to stop. I introduced the Herodians, but the story of James and, and Peter, uh, we'll have to pick that up next time. Uh, we did geography. We did uh, the family tree. Can't, can't include all of those next time. Sorry, the, the, the visual stuff, we, just, we spend too much time on it. But we'll continue the story, uh, and we'll see what happens after the Herod has his say. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.